sleep. You may constantly long for more of it, but some fear it because of the sleep terrors, hallucinations, and nightmares awaiting them. It's been said the worst nightmare is the one that continues after you wake up. But for some who deal with sleep disorders, the true terror is waking up and realizing you've injured yourself or someone else. Sleepwalking killers are rare, but they are a part of our history. In the 1870s, Simon Fraser was in bed with his wife. Their toddler was sleeping peacefully in the room with them. In the middle of the night, as Fraser was in a disoriented state, awakening from a nightmare, he threw their child against the floor of the room, and his son died. A grief-stricken Fraser stood trial for murder of his own child, and his attorney raised what's been called the sleepwalking defense, saying Fraser had no idea what he was doing and never intended to hurt anyone. The jury agreed. They acquitted Fraser, saying this was clearly something that was out of his control. But for some who claim to be sleepwalking killers, there's a fine line between the sleepwalking defense and outright murder. In the summer of 1943, a young woman from Covington, Kentucky, was accused of murdering her father and brother. The case still stirs up controversy and debate in eastern Kentucky because some folks believe the jury got it all wrong. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the story of Joan Kiger, the sleepwalking killer of Covington, Kentucky. In the summer of 1943, it was hard to imagine any front-page headline that didn't feature a story about World War II. But that August, the story featured on the front page of newspapers across America was a shooting in Boone County, Kentucky. The vice mayor of Covington, Carl Kiger, along with his six-year-old son, Jerry, had been shot and killed in their summer home. Kiger's wife, Jenny, was shot in the hip and hospitalized in critical condition. The only member of the family to emerge from the home unharmed was the Kiger's 15-year-old daughter, Joan. As vice mayor of Covington, which is directly across the Ohio River from downtown Cincinnati, Carl Geiger was rumored to be in the grips of organized crime because the Chicago and Cleveland mob were active in Covington at this time. Geiger was said to be involved in racketeering, possibly a bagman delivering cash to folks who were bribed by the mafia. This was never proven. But when word spread of the shooting at the Kiger summer home in Boone County, neighbors, even police, immediately assumed it was a mob hit because multiple weapons were used and the victims had been shot multiple times. It was a grisly scene. And if it had been a mob hit, the shooting would have been tragic, but not surprising. When the Kiger's 15-year-old daughter, Joan, 
was arrested for the crime, it sent shockwaves through Covington and across the country. Imagine the surprise when the public learned Joan was said to have shot and killed her father and brother, wounded her mother while she was awakening from a nightmare. Decades on, there are still questions and debate over what happened inside the Kiger's home in the summer of 1943. Before the Kiger shooting, the little community of Devon, off the Dixie Highway between Richwood and Florence, Kentucky, was this quiet and peaceful place. That's why the Kigers like to escape Covington and head out to their summer home, Rosegate. The Kigers had two older sons who were in the military and away from home, fighting in World War II. So it was Carl and his wife Jenny, along with their daughter Joan and six-year-old son Jerry, who were staying at Rosegate that summer. The two-story home was built in the 19th century and offered a prominent politician like Carl Kiger a place to unwind and relax, which was tough for Carl because he had become a paranoid man who kept three pistols in his house at all times. He kept two in the downstairs study, and the third he always kept under his pillow. He obsessively checked doors and windows to make sure they were locked at night, even in the height of the summer months. He hired locksmiths to install double locks in the family's home in Covington and had planned to do the same thing at Rosegate. That obsession with protection, trying to ensure no outside force could gain entry to the Kiger home and hurt someone inside, made people believe the rumors about Carl's mob connections were true. That's possible, but Carl Kiger also had a traumatic experience with burglars when he was 17. That trauma led to chronic nightmares, which could also explain why he slept with a revolver under his pillow and added nails to the window frames to ensure no one could force a window open. Carl Kiger never imagined the greatest risk to his family was already inside that house. On August 16, 1943, the Kigers hosted a party at Rosegate to celebrate their 24th wedding anniversary. After their guests left, they prepared for bed, and Carl Kiger double-checked the house was all locked up and the windows were closed and secured. Just before 1 a.m., one of the Kiger's neighbors, Mr. Mayo, heard Joan Kiger screaming for help. She was yelling that her mother, her father, and younger brother Jerry had all been shot. The Mayo's home was near Rosegate, so Mr. Mayo and his 19-year-old son, Robert, quickly made their way to the Kiger home, where Joan kept reminding them to be careful because the intruder could still be in the house. Mr. Mayo later admitted he was terrified to enter that pitch-black house, but he pushed through the fear because he knew Carl Kiger and his family, and he wanted to help if he could. Mayo handed a gun to his son, Robert, as they entered Rosegate and told him to stand guard at the front of the stairs. 
He told Robert to shoot anyone who tried to escape that house. And then Mr. Mayo walked upstairs. He turned the light on as he entered the Kiger's master bedroom. He saw Mrs. Kiger lying on the bed next to her husband, Carl, who was clearly dead. Jenny Kiger was bleeding, and Mayo noticed she was holding a gun. Jenny said Joan handed the gun to her before she fled the house to get help. Mr. Mayo tended to Jenny's wound to help control the bleeding and told her he was going to check on their son, Jerry. He moved on to open the door to six-year-old Jerry's room and found the child taking his final breaths. Mr. Mayo called Covington Police, the local county sheriff, and state police to come to Rosegate. By the time police and concerned neighbors made it to the home, there were nearly 20 people inside Rosegate, which made for a chaotic crime scene. When police sat down to talk to Joan, she told investigators an intruder wearing dark clothing had woken her up, and she fired several shots at the intruder in front of the doorway to her parents' room. She explained she put the revolver on the floor because she couldn't pull the trigger again. She then heard her brother Jerry crying and walked to the landing near the stairs and fired shots at a shadowy figure standing over Jerry in his bedroom. When Boone County Sheriff Jake Williams arrived at Rosegate, he joined fellow investigators in search of any sign of an intruder All of the doors and windows were secured, and there was no sign of a break-in. Authorities continued their search of Rosegate and found something pinned to the back of a sofa that seemed very suspicious. An envelope with $1,440 inside. That was a lot of cash then, but today it would be the equivalent of $22,000 which is why police believe the money was linked to illegal gambling associated with organized crime. Then there was the question of the guns. They knew Mr. Kiger had three pistols. Joan said she had fired all three. She left one with Mrs. Kiger, but police searched the home and didn't find the other guns. It was Mr. Mayo who found them. He was standing in the kitchen when he looked out the back window and noticed the trap door over the cistern out back was open. He grabbed a flashlight, looked down into the cistern, and saw a little glint of metal. Police moved in and recovered two pistols from the cistern, one empty and one with four empty shells. They also recovered six empty shells on the bottom of the cistern. Carl, Jenny, and Jerry Kiger had been shot inside their locked home. Sheriff Williams had no evidence of an intruder, and the only person who wasn't injured admitted she had fired all three guns. 15-year-old Joan Kiger was arrested and charged with murder. Prominent Covington attorney Sawyer Smith defended Joan who pled not guilty the day after the murder. She was held at the Boone County Jail without bail 
but the judge did order police to take Joan to see her mother, who was recovering at the hospital. Jenny Kiger hugged her daughter and told police that before she heard shots, she heard Joan screaming that a crazy man was in the house and he was going to kill all of them. And Jenny said she wasn't too surprised by that shouting because Joan had dealt with nightmares for years. Jenny said she shouted back to see if her daughter was having a nightmare. But moments later, shots were being fired and she was struck in the hip. She fell down on the bed and decided to play dead, hoping she wouldn't be shot again. Joan Kiger was returned to jail but Sawyer Smith petitioned the court for bail, and eventually it was granted. Joan went to stay with her uncle Fred, and her mother Jenny joined them when she was released from the hospital. Months later, there was an unexpected development in the case when Jenny Kiger was arrested in connection with the murders. On December 14, 1943, the Boone County Grand Jury indicted Joan and Jenny Kiger for the willful murder of Carl and Jerry Kiger. The prosecutor was honest with the grand jury, telling them he wasn't sure who the shooter was. It could have been Joan or Jenny. But he claimed the state could prove malice aforethought. Joan's bed had not been slept in prior to the shooting, yet she told Mr. Mayo and the police She had been awakened in her bed to an intruder. And there was a critical statement from a witness who testified Mrs. Kiger told him she asked her daughter to, quote, go downstairs and get the money and the will and bring them to me just after the shooting. Why would Jenny Kiger care about a will and some cash when her husband was dead beside her in her bed, her son was dead in his room, and she was bleeding from a gunshot wound. Mrs. Kiger never confessed to making that statement or any involvement, but the state did have a confession from Joan Kiger, who admitted to firing the weapons. The Commonwealth wanted to try Joan and Jenny for the murders of Carl and Jerry, but felt they could make the best case against Joan for premeditated murder. By the time she was indicted, Joan Kiger was 16 years old, which meant she stood trial as an adult in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. The state of Kentucky had no clear motive, but they sought the death penalty when Joan's trial began at the Circuit Court in Burlington, Kentucky on December 16th, 1943. The Kiger's eldest son, Marine Lieutenant Joe Kiger, was a gunner's mate and away on duty at the time of the murder. He was granted leave to return home and support his mother and sister during the trial. Defense attorney Sawyer Smith started the trial by petitioning the court to dismiss all charges against Joan, saying she had suffered from a nightmare when she shot her father, brother, and mother. He told the judge the high school student didn't need jail time. She needed treatment, and if necessary, hospitalization. 
Commonwealth Attorney Raymond Vincent protested, saying the sleepwalking defense was hogwash and demanded the trial move forward so Joan could be found guilty and sentenced to die by electrocution. The judge denied Smith's petition, and Sawyer Smith went to work to try to save his client. The defense began by establishing how common nightmares were in the Kiger home. Mrs. Kiger took the stand and testified about her husband's nightmares in which he thought robbers were after him. Joan's nightmares had been shocking to Jenny Kiger because they started in recent years when Joan was, quote, transitioning from girlhood to womanhood. But Jenny Kiger said she had become accustomed to her husband's nightmares after 24 years of marriage. At that point, she broke down in tears, explaining the night before her husband and son died, the Kigers had celebrated their wedding anniversary. Other relatives testified they knew of Carl and Joan's nightmares and were unified in their belief there was no motive for Joan to hurt anyone in the family. Sawyer Smith's defense relied on the jury believing Joan could have shot her family while experiencing a nightmare. The Kiger family physician and a psychiatrist testified that it was entirely possible Joan was in that state, experiencing a nightmare when she killed her father and brother. The testimony of expert witness Dr. George Sprague was critical. Dr. Sprague was the director of High Oaks Sanatorium near Lexington. Joan was sent to that sanatorium for evaluation in the days following the shooting. Smith asked Dr. Sprague to answer the complicated question of how Joan could have shot a gun in the middle of a nightmare. The doctor said Joan was not in a normal waking state. He explained Joan suffered with nightmares for years, and in those nightmares, just like her father, she saw robbers. Dr. Sprague told the jury that consciousness was not the same in a nightmare as when a person is awake. You pay more attention to your internal mental state rather than external things because you see what's in your mind rather than what is going on around you. Dr. Sprague explained that if Joan fired the fatal bullets while hallucinating that robbers were harming her family, her nightmare would have been aggravated or possibly intensified by the sounds of the gunshots. She would have expected to hear gunshots because she was firing a gun to protect her family, which would explain why the shots didn't bring Joan to a fully conscious state. The Kiger's family doctor, Dr. Ertel, testified to his knowledge of Joan's nightmares that had plagued her for years, but clarified he treated her father for the sleeping disorder but had never treated Joan for nightmares. Dr. Ertel did speak of his concern when he was called to Rosegate to tend to Joan the night of the shooting, saying Joan seemed to be somewhat dazed, swaying back and forth as she sat down beside him and she was talking to herself. Sawyer Smith asked 
if Dr. Ertel believed Joan needed treatment. His reply was that he felt that way the night of the shooting because she seemed out of sorts. He was concerned about her, but he wasn't given the chance to help her because of all the commotion at the crime scene. Neighbors also testified that on several occasions, they heard gunshots. And when they went to check on things in the neighborhood, they found Carl Kiger in his backyard, firing shots up in the air. They said they would guide him back into the house because it was well known by everyone in their neighborhood he suffered from nightmares. Sawyer Smith asked the jury if Carl Kiger didn't wake up when he fired shots in his nightmares, why would you expect Joan to? Joan Kiger had the chance to tell the jury what happened in her own words. She testified she was sleeping, and just before midnight, she was awakened by a gunshot. Joan said she thought she heard her mother call for her, so she got up and went to the door and saw a shadowy figure standing in the doorway of her parents' room. She thought someone was robbing or hurting her dad, so she went downstairs to get his guns. She returned upstairs, and as she looked into her parents' room, she claimed she saw a man choking her father in his bed and immediately shot at that man. And then she heard her mother tell her to check on her brother. When Joan approached Jerry's room, she said she thought she heard a noise and fired into the room to help Jerry, to protect him from the man standing over him. Joan said that's when she felt her mother shaking her and asking her if she had another nightmare, asking if that's why she shot them. When Sawyer Smith asked Joan how she felt about her father and her brother Jerry, she said she felt protective of them and had no reason to kill them. As Smith wrapped up his defense, he played to the patriotism of the era. World War II was on, and Joan's big brother Joe was sitting in the courtroom in his Marine uniform. Smith turned to the jury and asked if they wanted to burden a soldier with the weight of his 16-year-old sister being sent to prison and sentenced to death for a crime she wasn't responsible for. He said Joan should be found not guilty and assured the jury if they made the right call, Joan's medical treatment would be taken care of by her uncle Fred Williamson, who had taken in Joan and her mother after the shooting at Rosegate. Before Commonwealth attorney Raymond Vincent began the arguments for the prosecution, he had the headboard of six-year-old Jerry Kiger's bed brought into the courtroom. It was placed right in front of the jury, along with photographs of the crime scene and the three pistols used to shoot Carl, Jerry, and Jenny Kiger. Vincent made it clear he didn't believe this sleepwalking defense and asked that the jury not fall for it either. He said Joan Kiger should be found guilty and die by electrocution for the cold-blooded murder of her father and brother, and he could prove it. Vincent reminded the jury that Joan had testified under oath that she fired from a landing at the top of the stairway 
at a robber who was standing over her brother, trying to hurt him. Raymond Vincent pointed to three bullet holes in the headboard and used a pencil and some sticks to show the downward path of the bullets which had passed over Jerry Kiger as his killer was firing at him. Vincent said Jones' version was a physical impossibility, explaining to the jury it was impossible for Joan to be standing where she claimed to stand and shooting at what she believed to be an adult intruder standing over her brother in his bedroom and instead directly shoot her sleeping brother multiple times. Vincent directed the jury to Mrs. Kiger's odd instructions to Joan, the witness who claimed Mrs. Kiger had sent Joan downstairs after Carl was shot and killed and asked her daughter to get his will and the cash she stashed at the back of the sofa. Vincent also pointed out a small detail he felt should matter to the jury. He noted that in previous statements, Joan Kiger and her mother Jenny referenced intruders in the house. But throughout the trial, as the women testified, they mentioned robbers in the house. Vincent claimed this inconsistency showed the women weren't telling the whole story and were picking and choosing what they shared about the shooting. And throughout the trial, Joan Kiger remained quiet and stone-faced. Raymond Vincent pointed this out, literally pointed to Joan and said there was a coldness to her that should concern everyone. He reminded the jury that eight shells were identified as having been fired from one of the guns that Joan said she threw in the cistern. He asked this of the jury, if I am shooting somebody and I unload the gun and then go and get another gun and load that one, how long does it take before I show malice? Vincent looked to the jury and again pointed to Joan and said she was determined that Carl Kiger would never get out of that bed and little Jerry Kiger died because he was old enough to talk and she couldn't risk him revealing what really happened in the house that night. Vincent closed by telling the jury, a good woman is a wonderful thing, but a mean woman is cold and calculating. He asked if they had seen any tears from Joan, because he hadn't, which told him that when she shot her family, she was like a cat going after its prey, getting those pistols and firing them. Vincent then leaned in toward the jury, raised his voice to make his final point. If Joan Kiger had a nightmare, she did some awfully good shooting. It makes no difference if you want to turn her loose and just let her have another nightmare. The one thing Vincent could not present to the jury was motive. There was never an explanation of why Joan Kiger would or could, with malice and a forethought, murder her father and brother and shoot her mother. Before the case was handed over to the jury, the judge instructed that three verdicts were possible. Joan could be found guilty of murder, that she willfully and with malice of forethought 
murdered Carl and Jerry Kiger. The jury also had the option to return a verdict of voluntary manslaughter, that the deaths occurred in a sudden heat of passion. The last option was that Joan could be found not guilty due to being unconscious or nearly unconscious, that she did not comprehend her own situation or supposed at the time she did the shooting that she was defending members of her family who were being attacked. Jury deliberations began on December 21st, 1943. Inside the courthouse, they would have heard the high school band playing Christmas carols on the lawn of the courthouse as a large crowd waited for that verdict. When the jury returned nearly four hours later, the verdict was not guilty. Joan Kiger simply said, I am very glad, and then turned to her big brother, who kissed and hugged her and celebrated with their relatives. Following the verdict, Raymond Vincent said the state offered all the evidence they had. As he put it, the jury was trying a young girl, and evidently it didn't want to send her to prison with hardened criminals. And that's why the jury turned her loose. But the jury talked to reporters and made it clear their decision was based on the prosecution never presenting a motive. Vincent claimed Joan was a cold-hearted killer who deserved to die for her crime, but he never explained why. One juror said that when it came down to it, they thought maybe Joan had done this negligently, but they did not think there was malice. They believe she did it just as lawyer Sawyer Smith said, that it was while she was asleep or had just awakened. Joan was acquitted, but not immediately free. She was institutionalized for one year. Jenny Kiger remained in Covington and would take a job at a department store. When Joan was released from the institution, she moved to Louisville, where she built a new life for herself under a new name. Her alias was Marie Kyler. She graduated from the University of Louisville with a degree in education, dedicated her life to teaching and serving as a guidance counselor. A majority of Joan's relatives did not know her whereabouts or her new identity until she died of cirrhosis of the liver in 1991 at the age of 64. Joan just sort of disappeared. She was that family member you just didn't talk about. The shooting at Rosegate in the summer of 1943 has been compared to the O.J. Simpson trial of 1995 because of the nationwide coverage and the verdict that is still debated and considered controversial. Joan Kiger was acquitted, but there are still many people who doubt her innocence. Her bed not being slept in the night of the shooting, the impossibility of accidentally shooting her brother in his bed from where she claimed to have fired those shots, and her lack of remorse. Joan never showed emotion in the courtroom. Even his crime scene photos of her brother and father 
were shown in court. Hal McFarlane grew up in Kentucky and wrote a book about the Kiger murders. It's called A Dream Within a Dream. During an appearance on a Kentucky talk show years ago called Have Your Say, Hal spoke with the host, Lana Kay, about people who have shared stories with him through the years and why they remain conflicted over that verdict. He mentioned that after Joan's acquittal, when she was institutionalized, she was treated at several clinics, at least five. And at some point in that year, her older brothers were called back stateside because something had happened to Joan at the institution. His belief was the only thing that could have brought those young men back during the war was a suicide attempt. If true, that might mean Joan had finally processed the reality that she killed her father and her little brother and had been overwhelmed when the reality finally set in. Hal also mentioned a woman whose father had been on the jury at Joan Kiger's trial. How her father once said that if he could go back in time, he might just change how he voted because of a pillow. It was something that bothered him decades after that verdict. He explained that at trial, the jurors were shown photos of the bloody sheets and pillows in Carl and Jenny Kiger's bedroom. And he often thought of this one pillow that was shown. It was folded over itself and shot through. He spent a lot of time thinking about why. And his theory was that Jenny Kiger folded that pillow in half, put it over herself, and told Joan she had to shoot her so the police wouldn't think her mother had shot Carl and Jerry. Remember, when Joan testified at trial... She mentioned that when she was awakened by that intruder, she also thought she heard a gunshot and had called out to her mother. Decades on, this juror wondered if they got it all wrong. Maybe Jenny had done the shooting and then forced Joan to shoot her and help her own mother cover up the crime. And she may have had a motive to do it. Could Jenny's motive for murder have been to escape the danger of her husband and his association with organized crime? Now, there are still lots of questions about all the cash in the Kiger home and Carl's paranoia about trying to protect his family and himself. Then there was all the money Carl Kiger was spending right before his death. He bought a new car. He had bought Rosegate's. For 12 grand, that was a lot of money in the 1940s. And he insisted that both Kiger homes be titled in only his wife's name, which was very unusual in the 1940s. When you add all that up, along with the testimony at Joan's trial that Jenny asked Joan to help her get Carl's will and the cash, even as her husband was dead beside her, Well, that could point to motive. But Jenny Kiger was never tried for the murders. And we'll never know. There are still plenty of questions about who fired the shots that killed Carl and Jerry Kiger. 
And if it was premeditated and then carried out by Jenny or Joan, or Jenny and Joan, or if it really played out the way Joan said, an accidental shooting believed to be in defense of her family as she was having a nightmare. All we know for sure was that once she was freed from the institution in 1944, Joan Kiger separated herself from her life in Covington. She changed her name, but she could never escape the fear that she could have another deadly nightmare. Which may explain why she never married or lived with anyone until the day she died. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. You can view photos and sources for this episode in the show notes at southernmysteries.com. You know, this is an independent podcast, and I rely on member support to keep producing episodes of this show. So if you want to help out, you can join my newest patrons in supporting the show on Patreon. Special thanks to Melissa from Charlotte, North Carolina, Jennifer from Kalamazoo, Michigan, Joey from Corpus Christi, Texas, Jennifer from Bordentown, New Jersey, and L.A. from Leander, Texas. So appreciate their support. And because they're supporting Southern Mysteries, they get to hear monthly bonus content called Southern Mysteries Shorts. And you can too. You can learn more about supporting the show and sign up today at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. And remember, you know, to make sure you never miss a new episode, tap on that follow button where you're listening. And if you like the show and want to encourage other people to listen, make sure you rate and review Southern Mysteries where you're listening now so folks know it's a show worth checking out. Appreciate that and appreciate you for listening to and supporting Southern Mysteries. 